1: this episode of white Wine question time i got the uh,
2: cocktail okay i was gonna say what you're drinking nod it's gin gin martini nice but i've got it hidden in the teapot because if my <laughs> doctor watches this I like I said, if I get bored in a hotel room and, you know, the shower curtain, the shower rails always hanging off or the curtain... Oh, so I'll, 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 I'll I said, you must be the only guy. <laughs> Rock bands wreck their hotel rooms. You're the only guy who actually leaves your hotel room better than when you entered it. It was a hippy-dippy, psychedelia song. And it, yeah. the chorus went, so won't you buy me a rocking chair to watch the world go by... Buy me a looking glass to look me in the eye. And I said to the crowd, Is there anything you want to hear? This is August Bank (laughs) Holiday. I said, Is there anything you want to hear? And they all shouted, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. I said, We're not playing Merry Christmas. I said, If you want to hear Merry Christmas, you like singing. So they started to sing it. 80,000 people. Hello
1: and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest today, I am excited about this, I am so excited about this, we have only gone and landed the voice of Christmas, yeah. He's also a full-blown national treasure and a total rock god. Born in 1946 in Walsall, in the West Midlands, he fell in love with music the moment his dad passed him a mic and invited him to join him on stage at a working man's club at just seven years of age. By the time he was 13, he'd founded his first group, the Rockin' Phantoms, and they were gigging semi-professionally by the time he left school at 16. Then followed years of gigging in pubs and clubs, in fact pretty much anywhere he could get a book in, whilst trying to crack the music industry. Cut to 1966, and he was tempted away from the Phantoms to join Ambrose Slade. A name change and a couple of makeovers later, going from skinheads to rock glam superstars, Slade were born, and Slade Mania quickly took over. Their 1972 album Slade went to number one, and in the 70s, no one had more number one singles than Slade, to the point that they felt at times like they were the top of the pop's house band. That's how often they appeared on the show. To date, they've sold more than 50 million albums, but the song of his that we all sing most often was first released a year later, 50 years ago this Christmas in fact, giving them their sixth and final number one. Merry Christmas everybody shifted half a million copies on pre-orders alone. It shut its way to the top of the charts and sold over a million copies throughout Europe, charting again eight times in the 80s, twice in the 90s and every year since 2006. In fact, today, its total streams just on Spotify alone are 132 million. In 1992, he left Slade, going on to host countless TV shows, radio programmes and commercials, Be it as the face of Nobby's Nuts, to play music teacher Neville Holder opposite Amanda Holden in television comedy The Grimleys. Now 77... He's an MBE, awarded for his services to music, and lives with his second wife, the journalist and author Susan Holder, in Cheshire. And he's the father of three grown-up children. In 2018, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and given just six months to live. But five years on, thanks to an experimental chemotherapy drug trial, he was invited to take part in. He is still going strong and is in very rude health. As we're about to hear, let's dial him in. It's Christmas. It's Noddy Holder.
2: You've done your research, my word. It's Nod. Incredible. But
1: what an incredible, I mean, do you know what? What an incredible life. It was so hard trying to just get it down
2: to that. Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, I, I, this year, this is my 60th year professionally in Shelby. Wow. I turned professional in 1963 Jeez. and went on stage the very first time in 1953 when I was uh, seven years yeah. old. So I've been treading the boards that long. And that, that, it's a long that time. That was
1: with your dad, wasn't it? He was a window cleaner by day. Well, so my
2: dad called me up on yeah. stage. We used to, in those days, in, in the 50s, it, today it would be called karaoke. Yeah. In the pubs in those days, it was called free and easy. Anybody could get up and perform. Comedians, singers—you didn't have a backing tapes or anything. You had to a piano player would vamp behind you. And me dad knew I could sing a bit at all, and he was an amateur singer around the pubs. He was a great singer, but he never had any aspirations to be a professional. And he and he called me up one Sunday night at this free and easy. And he knew, I knew, the number one song on the charts at the time, in 53, which was a song called I Believe. I Believe for Every Drop of Rain That Falls. And it was a version by Frankie mm. Lane, a country and western singer. And I got up and sang it. of course, it was number one on the charts, as I say. And me with my little high soprano voice at that age, bought the place then. Yeah, And I got my first taste of applause. Mm. And uh, it was downhill all the way then. I wanted more, more, more. Hooked. Yeah, I was hooked on it. And uh, I never thought I'd make a living out of it. Never thought I could make any money out of it. But then around the mid-50s, I discovered Little Richard and Elvis and Chuck Berry, the rock and rollers. Mm. And I went to see a movie that was in my home movie theatre. This was in the Black Country in the West Midlands. And uh, there was a film on called The Girl Can't Help It. And in those days, these sort of movies, they were terrible plots. But they had a, rock, a lot of rock and roll artists doing guest right. spots on them. And in this one, Girl Can't Help It, Little Richard was guesting. Wow. And I thought, I want to see Little Richard in the flesh. I heard his records on You're Too Young to Know. Ye oldie Radio Luxembourg. That you protect to <laughs> get Europe. On a little, you know, little headphones, and uh, when he appeared on screen, like in this massive screen in the cinema, he was black. He got pompadour hairdo, all his hair piled up, thick makeup, shiny suit. His band were all rocking behind him, doing all the dancing with wow. the saxophones. And the most unusual thing that nobody knew, UK did besides all that was he stood up playing the piano (laughs) and he looked amazing he looked amazing and he did the theme tune as well to the movie the girl can't help It. and i walked out the cinema that day and i thought it was an epiphany i thought i want to do this this is something i want to do this this is where i want to spend my life treading the boards doing this i never thinking i'd get a chance professionally but gradually, slowly but surely, I did. I got the cocktail cake. Nice. So I was going to say, what are you drinking, Nod? It's gin. Gin martini. Nice. But I've got it hidden in a teapot because if my doctor <laughs> watches this, it's like the old speakeasy days. <laughs> I have no idea. Do you know what? If you can't
1: have a gin out of a teapot at 77, when can That's you? That's true. Um, how are you doing in your health,
2: Nod? All good? All right, yeah. Uh, five years ago, I got diagnosed. I had. They gave me six months to live, uh, which was a hard one to take, obviously. yeah, I was more concerned for my wife and kids and grandkids than I was for myself. I'm a sort of happy-go-lucky sort. I thought, if it's six months, it's six months. Um, You know, I've had a great life. I've had a lot of fun in my life. Um, But they sent me to the Christie Hospital in Manchester and gave me scans, lots of scans. And the consultant there said, uh, we've got this treatment, this new treatment that's very, it targets, targets the tumour. It was esophagus cancer that I had. And he said, uh, we've never tried it on anybody over 60. Four times more powerful than normal chemo. Blimey. And he said, if you want to try it, we can try it. We're not giving you any guarantees. Uh, you, you know, you'll be the first one over 60 to take it. I was 72 at the time. I thought, what choice have I got? Um, it's six months. So I try it out. I tried it out, and that yeah. was five years ago, and I'm still here. So it's worked so Blimey. far. I never tell you your cure, you're cured, mind you. Never in any cancer. But it's so far, touch wood, it's been okay. They came to the right man, didn't they? Constitution of an ox you've got. Well, it, it's also your mindset. I don't say it works for everybody. And this treatment wouldn't work for everybody. I was, I was one of the lucky ones. and uh, But he, uh, the consultant says, I'm giving it you because you have got a great outlook, a positive outlook on life, which I've always had, even as a little kid I have. I live for now. Yesterday don't matter that much to me. Future don't matter, matter much to me. What people say about me don't matter much to me because most of them I'm never going to meet and I never don't know. So I go along in my own sweet way. I've always done that. And he said that's a good attitude for you to, you know, try the treatment and the recovery out. Of course, it fell unlucky for me that just as I'm getting my strength back, I'd done my course of chemo. Just as I'm getting my strength back, because I built, I had to build up my immune system and everything again. Mm. COVID hit. Oh no! So then, if I if I'd have caught Calvin, I would have been in big trouble. Uh, God, that must but, have made it but, very you know, stressful in lockdown. Very, very careful what I did and where I went and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, it's all worked out so far.
1: Well, Nod, you're back on stage this year. I was? And that was something you didn't think you'd do. I, and I you, you liked I it so much. much, you've just, just done another show. Time.
2: I've done appearances on stage in various charity things. And I did, uh, I did a talk tour with an old mate of mine from radio, you'll know, Mark Radcliffe, big yes. pal of mine. And big, we're big pals. He knows more about me than any any radio presenter should know, <laughs> and <vice> versa. <laughs> and uh, he, he said, "Will you come out on a talk tour and do tell some stories like we used to do on radio on Radio Two back in the old days?" Yeah. And uh, I said, "Yeah, no, I I wouldn't mind." So I did that too with him, which was very successful. And then this year, as I was still alive, um, there's a, there's a band. Uh, Call the Tom Seals band. They're like uh, a young version of the Jules Holland big band. They're all under thirty. None of them have got a clue what the bloody hell I'm talking about half the time. <laughs> <laughs> but they're great jazz boogie woogie players. And he says, "Will you come out and do a few shows on my tour?" And we were doing theatres about I don't know anything up to a thousand people. And I thought, "Well, I'm still I'm still alive. Maybe I should get out and." Do a few songs and tell a few dirty stories. And that's what I did. And I really enjoyed it, you know. We've had some great nights, and I get on great with the band. They're real good musos. They got a muse sense of humour, so I can say what I like. I mean, sometimes on stage, I'll bring one of them to the front, and they are terrified. When I when I bring one of them to the front, they don't know what I'm gonna do with them. One example was. On one of the shows we did in Manchester, um, we had a lady playing the trombone in, in the band. and um, It's a big band, isn't it? Oh, it's Roddy? a big band, yeah. It's a nine-piece band, yeah. yeah. And uh, I kept referring to them as the guys in the band during the show. So when we come off for the interval, Tom Seals, who's the leader of the band, he said, Nod, you've got to... Stop saying to the audience, the guy's in the band, because we have got a lady in the band. So, you know, just say the band. And so I went on. I don't know whether I can swear on this podcast, but you <laughs> I went you back on the stage. And I said, oh, I've just had a bollock in the, in the <laughs> interval because I've been told off for being a bit on pc and saying the guy's in the band. Well, as you can see, we have a lady in the band. And I said, Ellie, come out front, please. And she'd come out and she was seven months pregnant. And uh, I said, as you can see, we have a lady in the band. They all applauded the audience. I said, as you can see, she's with child. They all applauded again. And I said, and it's not mine. Because <laughs> <laughs> it gives me a laugh. <laughs> she whack.
1: She whacked you with her brass section. Yeah,
2: but it's that sort of happy-go-lucky night we do. and It's all ad-libs mouse nights, and we have, we do have some fun. Have you loved it?
1: Loved Has it. Has it made you feel a new energy being around musicians again. I
2: really loved it and the crowd loved it because it's something different to what I used to do on stage with Slade. The sort yeah. of songs I'm doing are, are like old 50s R&B songs, original versions of old 50s R&B and rock and roll songs. So uh, it's not what the public are used to seeing me doing, especially working with the brass section and that, you know, so it's... And the piano player, I mean, Tom Seals, he's just... He's a killer. He's a killer. How'd you know this band then? Well, uh, he, was a, he was a student at Lippa in uh, Liverpool, which is Paul McCartney founded
0: yeah. the university.
2: Uh, and uh, he was a student there. My son went there. So I first got to hear of him there. And uh, he just called, he just emailed my missus and said, Will you, will you do some dates? About, she was about three years ago. I did the Edinburgh Fringe with him, I did shows with him there. I did the jazz cafe in London, and then this year he asked me to do a few more with him, and uh, we do have a good time. And uh, it's a breath of fresh air for me to work with different guys and a different generation of of musos, and they uh, they adapt to what I want to do, and they they adapt to my sense of humour as well. Um, I think you're underestimating how much of um a legend you are, Nod, and
1: what, what kind of level of greatness you bring to any musical setting. I well, mean, that's nice
2: of you to say. That's lovely. I no,
1: I... seriously. You know, in the, in the 70s, Slade were it. Oh, yeah. You know, were, uh... Oasis covered Come On, Feel The Noise have... as one of their first cover versions. That, that was the influence you had. That's the tide washing back in again yeah. in terms of how far you reached.
2: Yeah, I had a great story the other day. My son has a recording studio in London. And the, the, the studio is called Feel the Noise Studios. And uh, he had an American guy come over the other day to look at the studio with some of the English guys from Dolby, the sound people. And yes. he was head of Dolby in America. And he came to my son Django's studio to have a look at the setup. It's only a little little small studio. And he wanted to see the Brass type of studio. And uh, the Derby guy from Britain brought, it, brought him to the studio. And he saw the sign on the wall that said, Feel the Noise Studios. And he said to Django, Oh, Feel, feel the Noise. He said, Come on, Feel the Noise. He said, uh, Oh, you know Quiet Riot then? We've had the a number one record in America with it. And Django said, Yeah, yeah. He said, I know uh, Quiet Riot's version. Yeah, yeah. He said, uh, But that is a cover version. Django said to this guy, He said, It's not a cool version. And Jang said, it is. So it's a cover version. He said, who did it originally? He said, well, my dad wrote it. (laughs) 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 What's the band called? And he said, Slade. He said, I've got to check these guys out. I didn't know that was a cool version. (laughs) Because it was number one in America for quiet riot.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when it blew, Noddy, it blew. You guys were... I mean, you were ginormous. You yeah. weren't just a big band. You were you, yeah. a world-beating band. Yeah. yeah.
2: The only trouble was in those days, I mean, we were shifting millions around the world, but in UK, it was terrible at that time, Bruce, because we were paying 93% tax in the pound. I mean, they talk about the tax right now, but it was 93%. Tax. How much? 93% we were paying. Wow, well, as a group or individually or both? Both, both. Jesus, I mean, and you we ne- and you did, never. Well, I mean, we did go and work in America for two years, but it wasn't for tax purposes. We didn't uproot uh, our citizenship. We were still shipping all our money back to UK and paying Blimey. UK taxes, uh, and we thought we were doing some good being socially aware, <laughs> um, but yeah. not as little did it do any good in the end of the day. But yeah, ninety nine percent we were paying a top whack. I mean, right at one the peak direct, of our sales, we paid ninety-nine percent because we were paying tax on our assets. Also, <sighs> oh, people don't realise that's why all the people, all the artists and film directors and film people went abroad. They lived in LA, went to LA. A lot of English bands went to LA or Ireland, where the tax rate obviously was much lower. Um, but you know, we didn't. We didn't, we didn't do that because. Our base was Britain. Europe was our base. We hadn't really took off in America at that point. And uh, although we toured America a lot, we were still paying UK taxes. Do you you still stand by that decision? Probably not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's honest. I mean, you think it's
2: going to do some good, fair enough. But it didn't. The country was just going to the dogs as well. And... If, if, with Merry Christmas, that's one of the reasons we, we, we recorded Merry Christmas. Because in 73, you had an oil crisis, so you could only drive 50 miles an hour on the motorway. TV was going off at 10 o'clock at night because of the power strikes. Miners were on strike, dustmen were on strike, bakers were on strike, gravediggers were on strike. There was wars in the Middle East pretty much parallel to what's going on now. As I was going say. <laughs> I mean, in Merry Christmas, our, the line of, in the chorus is, look to the future now, it's only just begun. We thought that was very optimistic. But it's still made today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> can I talk to you about that record? I am realise that you've probably talked it to death, but there is such an appetite for it because there is so much love for it. So can I drill into the song that soundtracks Christmas and has done for the last 50 years. Thanks, Nutty. Thanks for indulging me. You've said that it was probably the hardest song you've ever recorded, and not for any reasons that we might first think. Um, The song came at a time when the band was in... Not crisis, but not far well, it off. Was it was
2: crisis. You're right. That's the, that's a good word for it. Uh, I mean, two months before we went in to record it, this was in New York, we recorded it. But our drummer, we would just done. Uh, we were the first rock band to play Earl's Court. Uh, it's eighteen thousand. We were at the zenith of our career. We were number one in the charts with "Squeeze Me, Please Me," and uh, we were really top of the tree. Five days after Earl's Court, our drummer was in a car crash, his Bentley. Uh, He went through the windscreen, as did his girlfriend. His girlfriend was killed. They didn't give him 24 hours to live. He was in intensive care. I went up the next... Well, I got a call from his dad in the middle of the night saying, uh, Don Don Powell, his name was Don. He's been in a car crash, he's got, they don't even give him 24 hours to survive. He said, if you want to see him, you better go up first thing in the morning. And I went to see him, and the mess he was in, it shaved all his hair, uh, he got pipes out of every orifice, he just looked horrendous, And we didn't give him much chance. Anyway, he's a tough cookie. I mean, he's built like brick. A <laughs> uh, drummer as well. Uh, and uh, he came out of hospital, Six weeks later, he had no memory, no taste or smell, couldn't remember any of the songs, none of them, didn't know any of the hits. You'd tell him something, five minutes later he'd forget it. Anyway, the doctor said to him, if you're ever going to play the drums again, you've got to get on in the saddle now, otherwise you're never going to play again. I mean, his body was smashed up, really smashed up. And we thought we'd better get it because we were laying things on the line for the band. We didn't know whether he was going to be able to play again either. And we took him to New York. We thought it was safer away from the glaring eyes of the the press and the media. And we took him in the studio to see if he could start playing. He did start playing. And the only song we got to record at that point, this was in a blazing hot, the end of a blazing hot summer. It was under 100 degrees outside. Oh the only song we got ready written was Merry Christmas, Everybody. And our manager, producer, Chas Tunnel says, well, let's try and get it down if we can. But Don, he couldn't play the four minutes the length of the song because he couldn't Jeez. remember the arrangement. So I had to speak down the vocal mic to, there's a drum roll coming now, Don, you go, and we tried to record it like that, couldn't, so we had to record it in bits and dabs, like a jigsaw. Wow, which is not the way that you did it back then, is it? No. Much, more, much more the case now. Some bands did record like that, but Slade, it was no good for us. And anyway, we did have to, we had no choice. And we did all these bits and dabs, you know, in, in, in sections so that he could get through it. And then we had to get, take him out on the road to see if he could handle a live gig playing for two hours a night. And we left the producer and the engineer to try and piece the record together. Uh, Anyway, we came back. I think we were on the road for about four or five weeks all around America. We came back to uh, New York. He'd survived playing gigs. Couldn't remember the numbers. Jim, the bass player, while I'm chatting to the crowd, he's whispering in his ear. It starts like this, and then he could play. The ones he knew. How frightening for for him scary. as well. You Absolute know, scary. We went on, on like that for about three years, doing like that, and um, uh, we came back to New York. Applied us the mix of Merry Christmas. It worked. It all it fell into place. Must have been fate, or the gods were, the gods were shining down on us. They must have been, and they <laughs> brought it back to England. The producer brought it back to England took it to the record company, which was Polydor Records at the time. They flipped because they didn't know we were going to give them a Christmas song to be released at Christmas. They had no idea. They'd be pushing us to give them a record that could be released at Christmas, but not necessarily a Christmas song. And, of course, Charles took it in to them, and they went berserk. They said, this is a monster. We're going to put all everything behind this. And we came back to UK eventually. And we found out the day before it was released, which was early December, it had done 500,000 advance orders. When went I mean, straight to number one. It's insane. It's insane. And uh, it was uh, released that day, straight to number one, first day of release, which we'd already done twice that year with Come On, Feel The Noise and Squeeze Me, Please Me, we'd done that, as well on that in that year. But then, on the first day of reorders, we did another three hundred and sixty thousand in one day. <laughs> and the pressing plants in UK, couldn't keep up the demand. We had to get it pressed in Holland, Belgium, France, no. Germany, even the uh, even USA. We had to have them shipped in. I mean, all the other acts on the label were going mad because their records weren't getting pressed, <laughs> and last word. Jeez. But uh, it was the only way to keep up the demand, and we did up to Christmas, in about three weeks up to Christmas, we'd done a million, which was phenomenal. Geez. It was the fastest selling UK single up to that point. And just to give some context, that year also
1: released in the hope of making it to Christmas number one were Wizard.
2: Yeah, Mates of ours. Good Mates of ours, and Elton John with Step Into Christmas. Another mate of ours, yeah. And right. we didn't know they were doing a Christmas Wreck songs and they didn't know we were doing a Christmas song. Oh, rec. so it was all no, OK. No. okay so there was no... We didn't know until early December when they all come out that we would all have the same idea because wow. Lennon had done the year before with Happy Christmas War is over. So I think we all thought, well, it's cool to do a Christmas song now. So we'd all have the same idea. But it was so fun on, to go. on the Christmas Day top of the pops. Of course, all the number ones of the year get played. You do you do appear on Christmas Day, Top of the Pops. So we were on with three songs. And Roy Wood and Wizard were on because they'd had a number one We'd See My Baby Jive that year. So they were on the show as well. Because us being the current number one, we ended the show. And it, when it came to the last chorus of Merry Christmas, everybody, Roy Wood and Wizard came in. And just pelting me with custard pies <laughs> because we've beaten <laughs> the number one. And in the new video for the for the you know, the version of Merry Christmas out now, they've amalgamated the record company two seventy-three versions of Merry Christmas, everybody, from Top of the Pops. And there's a clip of me being oh, really? on the on the thing. But I still see Woody now. He's still a big pal of mine, Roy Wood. I mean he's he's one of the you know, oversh- overlooked great talents of UK, Roy Wood. I mean, he's. They were great wizards. Always genius. But he, he, don't only, he only, not only did that, he did the move. He started the band The Move Off, who had many hits. He started the band ELO Off. Who yes, had, of course. Yeah. And then he went to Wizard, of course. So he, his yeah. background is phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Yeah. I remember him telling me once he. First time he went over to the States and. Uh, he went to Los Angeles, landed in Los Angeles. And Brian Wilson of the Pet Shop Boys, uh, Pet Shop Boys, the Beach, Beach Boys, Boys, Brian Wilson invited him up to his house. And this yeah. was Woody's dream. He loved the Beach Boys, Roy Wood. Yeah. And he got him up to his house. And yet, I think he played wow. on a couple of sessions for the Beach Boys.
1: How, oh wow, how magical is that? Incredible, incredible. You know, there's a, there's a stat. Noddy, that says, um, according to PRS, so PRS are the people that pay um, royalties, right? Yeah, yeah. They estimated in 2009 that 42% of the world's population had heard your
2: record. Yeah. Merry Christmas, everyone. And uh, uh, they told us only a couple of years ago that, uh, I think it was over 3 billion. Hear it every year. 3 billion. Wow. Which he probably writes about 42% of the population yeah. I mean it's Jeez. incredible really Because no way When we wrote and recorded that song back in 70 We thought we got a hit on our hands When it record came and it was number one We thought this is great We thought it last a year, that's fine But to last 50 years on And still getting played everywhere around the world And charting Yeah, we never imagined that Records didn't back in the day They did not uh, You know You were Pop was disposable then Pop pop music was sort of disposable Yeah But after the 70s Seemed to revamp People revamped And uh, There's a big audience there For Looking back on people's um, Careers and back catalogue And of course we were lucky Because as you said earlier Oasis Started to do A couple of our songs And And uh, that revamped their audience, a younger audience, to go and look at our catalogue, and yeah. it started to shift again. I remember when Oasis went back to their hometown to Main Road. Uh, I mean, they were big band by this time. They did a homecoming gig at the Main Road Football Ground. I was and there. invited. Were you there?
0: And yeah, it was a great gig. Me.
2: And I was in. A, I was in a. You know, up in that area at the top, looking at mm-hmm. the. Sort of green room area And uh, they knew I didn't know But they knew Their uncle was going to come on And do Come on feel the noise Brilliant And uh, he sent Meg up He was married to Meg At the time And he sent yeah. Meg up To get me a, a snap of me Seeing my reaction uh, when Aww. they come on playing that And it was great for me Seeing all that crowd However many tens of thousands That were there Singing along to come on Feel the noise You know when they did it I mean... Especially right, when it's not we, you singing it. Brand new generation. Yeah, it's, it's great. Right.
1: You had a slight taste of that in 1980 at the Reading Festival uh-huh. when Ozzy Osbourne pulled out and you stepped in. And again, it finds you with a with band kind of like on, on shaky legs, right? You're not getting on great. There's
2: discussions around splitting up. We, well, we absolutely But you did. take the gig. We pretty much had split up. David left the band. David won. He'd, he'd left and... Uh, uh, Jim was off doing solo stuff and uh, we didn't know what was going to happen to the band. And um, we got the call three days before Reading Festival. This is 1980. And we tried to get on Reading for the past three or four years before then. They turned us down. We were uncool. We are over and done with, We were all farts. Really? You know, we got no chance of getting on. And uh, in 1980, there was this new metal crowd, which Reading had become by that point. And Ozzy Osbourne, with his new band, the Blizzard of Oz, they weren't ready. Typical Ozzy, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they weren't ready. And so I think there was a long list they found up to see who, who would replace Ozzy at three days' notice. Because I think everybody turned them down. I think we were bottom of a very long list of people. Do you think? Oh, I do think, absolutely. Anyway, well, they've never had us on before, so I think, I think we were at the bottom of the long list. Anyway, my manager, Chas Chandler, he called me up and said, uh, Redding want you uh, to replace Ozzy. And I said, oh. I said, well, I'll do it. I said, I'll call the others. But I don't think for a minute Dave's going to do it. Because he's gone, he's left. And he went, well, call him. Called everybody. Called Jim, Jim said yes. Called Don the drummer, yes. Called Dave, he went, no way. I've left. That's it, I've called you today. And I said, okay. So I got back to Chas, told him, and he said, I'll call him. Now, Chas could always talk Dave round. He has this, this <laughs> way of things, he, he, he called him up. And uh, he talked him around. And he said, if you're gonna go out and leave the man, go out on a high, go out in front of a big crowd. Uh, he said, you've, you've, you've worked, I mean, by that time, we'd been together 14 years, 15 years. He said, Go Long out time. And play in front of a big crowd. You're not top of the bill, but it doesn't matter. You can perform in the crowd. So, uh, of course, they didn't announce that we'd replaced. Don't forget, in those days, there was no social medias or anything. We, we literally hadn't got our backstage passes or nothing. We had three days' notice. <laughs> we arrived at the site. And it's effectively your farewell gig, right? Correct. You are smack <laughs> on. Yeah. We arrived at the site. And you're not really talking. No. Well, we were talking. Yeah, we were talking. Uh, just about. <laughs> and, uh, we pulled up in the public car park in our car, in the car, with our tour manager. Got our guitars and stage gear at the back of the car. Walked through the no. road to the backstage <laughs> area because we had no passes. Of course, we knew the security guards on the gate. They'd all worked for us in the past at Wembley and places. And uh, they said, oh, come on in, what are you lot doing here? I said, we've come to play. We hadn't been announced to nothing. No. No, not at this point. (laughs) This was the Sunday night, no. Because nobody knew whether we were going to do it or it was going to replace us or nothing. And they showed us to our caravan. And I think it was Tommy Vance came in the caravan and he said... uh, you're going to go down great tonight. He said, Well, we don't know. It's not our crowd. You know, it's a young metal crowd. We don't know what it's going to go. He said, Nobody has set the festival alight yet. He says, you've got, you've got more hits than any of these, all these bands put together. He said, Anyway, there was a bad feeling backstage. Of what the hell is Slade doing here at Reading? You know, that old bull in old forts, they're over and done, they're finished. And anyway, we went on stage. We were trepidation. We went on stage I bet. and there was only about half the audience there. All the others had gone back to the tents. Poor <laughs> White Snake, the top of the bill, came on. They'd gone, right? Nobody in the media pit below the press or the radio or anybody in the media pit, all backstage at the bar drinking. And we walked on. <laughs> You were completely anticipated as being a non-event then, yeah? Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And we came on and the audience that were left, i would say there was still about 20,000 people, uh, out of 80 odd thousand, uh, cheered us and we went on. So we did the first number, big cheer, really big cheer. We went straight into a second number rather than me chitter-tattering as I normally did. Straight into a second number, even a bigger cheer. By this point, we could see the hordes coming down from the tents wanting to come back to the arena. And suddenly the pit also, because they'd heard the cheers, the pit also filled them. And I went, oh, my God, it's Slade. And, of course, (laughs) we did the set we'd been playing, you know, for the past three or four years around Europe. And uh, we went down a storm, absolute storm. And we'd have never thought it. And then we come to the end of the show and you never on a festival get an encore unless you're top of the bill. They only allow you on unless you're top of the bill. So we came off. The crowd were chanting for us really loud. And the promoter was at the side of the stage with our manager. He was grinning at Dave because Dave, don't forget, didn't want to do this show. Yeah, it was our manager <laughs> who talked him into it was grinning at him. And the provoked says, you've got to get back on. He said, they are going crazy. We have to let you go back on. So we went back on. And I said to the crowd, is there anything you want to hear? This is August bank holiday. <laughs> I said, is there anything you want to hear? And they all shouted, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. I said, we're not playing Merry Christmas. I said, if you want to hear Merry Christmas, you lot sing it. So they started to the sing it. 80,000 people stopped Brilliant. hearing Merry Christmas. So we joined in with them. And then we, we did Mama all Crazy or one of the hits. Then we kept their boaters back on for another encore, which was unheard of at Reading, for, you know, for uh, Jeez. You know, a special guest act. And yeah. it, it revitalised our career, totally. We had all the front pages of the uh, music trades the next week. Yeah. Uh, radio started to play our records. TV started to accept us again. We had a hit on the back of Reading. And then went, had another 10 years as the band getting hit records around the world again. So it's rock and roll. You never know what's going to happen. Whether it's right again. You know, the same thing as after Don's accident. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Gods must have been smiling down on us again. Uh, it I mean, is the gift that keeps on giving this record, isn't yeah, it? Yep, yeah, yep, yeah.
1: yep. And it was. Uh, it really is. You know, who knows? You know, it was just, it just worked. Because originally it had been sat around in your sort of top drawer for six years. Yeah. And it wasn't a Christmas record no, at all. It was really it was yeah. about a rocking chair, wasn't it? You're right.
2: Um, and Jim's uh, mum in law said, uh, Oh, I, you know, you'll never be able to write a Christmas song like White Christmas, you know, that goes on forever. And Jim poo pooed the idea anyway. And then he said, I'm going I'm to take up the challenge. I'm going to show my mum in law we can do it. And he came to me <laughs> and he'd remembered. This song I'd got from six years before, it was a hippy-dippy psychedelic song. And it, yeah. the chorus went, so won't you buy me a rocking chair to watch the world go by? Buy me a looking glass to look me in the eye. And he'd remembered that. I'd played it the band. they'd all gone crap, and in the bit it went. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we saved it, and Jim remember the chorus melody. He got a verse melody that he, he liked, and he put the two together. Then he called me up and said, You think this could be a Christmas song? And I said, Yeah, probably. Sounds commercial. Sounds catchy. So I went away on the night, went to the pub, had a few whiskies, and wrote all the lyrics back at my mum and dad's. I was staying at my mum and dad's overnight. Wrote all the lyrics in one fell swoop that night. Went back to Jim, mm-hmm. played it him, then we took it to our producer. He loved it. And that's how, we, how it came about, really. It was wow. Good. There you go. You're just down now in rock and roll. The twist the drums and turns. You the don't, song. do you? Then, course, Don's accident happened, but it was the only song we got written. So we had to go in <laughs> and do it. <laughs> Otherwise, we might have, if we'd have had some other song, we might have gone in and recorded that. Who knows?
1: I bet he's very glad that he got some publishing on that one in the ah. end. <laughs> <laughs>
0: For a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. Tell me if
1: this is um, a true story or not. Um, you said the best compliment I ever had when we were recording, Merry Christmas everybody, was John Lennon was next door and he popped in and he said, great singer. Sounds like
2: me. Yeah, he did. We weren't there at the time. Wow. Charles was mixing one of our tracks. And uh, the harmonium you hear at the start of Merry Christmas, that little intro, that's John Lennon's harmonium. We borrowed it for, for it to play.
0: Oh, but it really?
2: The, yeah, yeah. And uh, he did come in the studio when we gone, we got gone home. Well, we'd gone back to the hotel. And he came in because he used to come in late at night to record Master Time. And he came and he said, oh, I love this singer, he sounds like me. Best compliment I ever had. Because Lennon did wow. not give out compliments to anybody. And it what that was the best I ever had was for Lennon. That was great. I never thought I wow. sounded like Lennon, but people told me all the time that I did. But I never thought I did, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> if there's anybody take who's going to take you, you take drunk Lennon, don't you? Yeah.
1: yeah. Totally. Um what does a record mean to you now, Noddy? I mean, obviously, it's kept you kept you warm across the years. Right. But what does it mean to you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, God, I, you, I mean, I'm sure you've um, been asked this a billion times, but it's, I mean, the numbers are reported um, at being half a million a year yeah, from don't airplanes. Every, every
2: number that's quoted, you know, it's not. Yeah, it just depends on years. Whether it's used in an ad, whether it's used in a movie. The amount it earns is different. It's got a life of it's own, uh, the record has. But what it means to me now, probably more than anything, is I love it when people tell me that when they hear it now, it reminds them of their mates from way back in the 70s who they used to go to gigs with or they went to school with, the mates that maybe now have passed on. Mm. And it, and it gives them memories of their mates and how they were down the youth club or, or the pub or wherever, all joining in and singing along to it. And it reminds them of that time. And the other thing is, little kids come up to me now in the street and the mum and dad will say to, them, that's that, that's that guy who sang, that's the bloke who sang Merry Christmas, everybody, the one you like. And they come up and tell me, that they'd just done it in their school concert. Oh, which yeah, is brilliant. It's got a life of its own. It's just brilliant. Yeah. For, that, for those two reasons, as much as the money, those two reasons are as good as you can ask for, you know, that you give. It, it always puts a smile on people's faces. I think Slade put a smile on people's faces. I mean, you've got people turn around and say, I hate the bloody thing, because they're sick to death every, every shop they are in and whatever. Uh, but generally, people are very kind about it, really kind. And we were always a sort of band, particularly on Top of the Pops, where people would go away and in the pubs the next day, they'd be talking about us, even if you didn't like the record, that particular record. They'd be talking about us, the daft things we used to wear, me and da- well, Dave particularly. Where did Dave get his clothes from? He had them made, but he, he came up with most of the ideas, but he had them made for him. And he used to, I've told this story, of many times that he never let us see a new outfit. He always had a new outfit for the top of the box. And uh, it was his thing. <laughs> and he never let us see him putting it on a bit at a time. He wanted to see the magic of the full ensemble. And <laughs> so we used to go into the toilets and to change. <laughs> and we used to be waiting for the appearance. And, uh, I could always tell because I'd hear him. I could hear the hairspray going. <laughs> Whether well, he was sticking the glitter on or whatever he was doing in there. But you could always tell it was nearing the end of the ensemble because the, the sound would be coming. Through. There was a finishing touches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'd say uh, H was his nickname in the band, H for him. And I'd say, come on, H, I'll reveal. And he'd, out, <laughs> and out he'd come in whatever outfit he had. He had a metal nun, which was like a nun's, <laughs> nun's outfit basically. We called him the metal nun. He had one that was all covered in fe- feathers. That was Foghorn Leghorn, you know, I said, I said, a cartoon character. But yeah. We give him all nicknames, and he'd come out, and Jim. Hated the glam rock dressing, Jimmy. He, he was a serious musician, for want of a better word. And he hated all that paraphernalia. And Dave would come out and he said I am not going on TV with you, Will. <laughs> I am not. He's actually walked out of photo sessions, Jim And Dave would say, Brilliant. You write them, I'll sell them. <laughs>
1: And he was right. And I've got to point out here that
2: Dave never took drugs or had a no, stylist. So absolutely I mean... not. He was total opposite to all that. He's just an eccentric. Before I was ever in the band with him, I used to see him, because we were in opposing bands in, in our hometown. And uh, I didn't really know him at that time. I knew Don the Drummer more so. And uh, I used to see him walking around the town in Wolverhampton. This was before he was ever famous or anything. And he'd be wearing a cloak you know he was like a bloody spanish (laughs) bloody uh matador matador (laughs) he'd be walking around the town like that totally off his tree people would say who the hell is that of course when glam rock came along it was an open door for for dave i mean he could go as daft as he wanted and of course if he saw anybody on top of the pops looking a bit more outrageous than him next appearance He'd have to go up a notch. That's just how he didn't go. He was terrible. Menoddy, would you yeah.
1: indulge me? Because normally I only do three questions on this show, but you've just lived too much of a life for me to be able to do that today. And because it's Christmas, I'm doing a selection box of questions for you. And I wanted to move next to one of your pieces of stage armor. Okay. Oh, your mirrored oh, ah, top okay. hat. I know it lives uh, safely in a bank it vault does, in New yes. York now. Yes. But you actually, I mean, you, you stuck the mirrors I onto did. it, is that right?
2: I, did. I bought the hat in Kensington yeah. Antique Market. And at the time, this is, this is, some people think I bought it from Freddie Mercury. But Freddie, back in 71, him and Roger had a stall in Kensington Market Roger Taylor, 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 Taylor from, from, yeah, from, Queen. from Queen. And they yeah. sold shirts. They weren't yet Queen. And they sold shirts and scarves and bits of stuff like that. And I used to, me and Dave, used to buy stuff from them. And uh, Freddie used to say to me when I uh, when I went to buy stuff, because we were sort of just becoming famous then, had a couple of hits, Freddie would say, darling, darling boy, Nuddy, I'm going to be a big pop star like you one day. And I used to say, oh, but oh, Freddie, you're not going to be an old pop star. <laughs> of course, he showed me, did he? And uh, I, used to live with Freddie. I used to get on great with him. Anyway, two stalls down from him was like a Victoriana stall. So I didn't actually buy the hat from Freddie, but it was two stalls down from Freddie. And uh, I found this old stovepipe hat, like a Victorian coachman's hat.
0: And I loved yeah. it.
2: I loved the look of it. I'd have been looking for uh, something I could... Do something with to reflect light because I'd seen Lulu on a TV show where lights had reflected off her dress, and I thought if I could do that on stage, it'd have a good effect like a gettable exactly. And uh, so I took the hat home. When I got uh, Jim's wife Louise, she got she used to be a window dresser in a big store, and she got me these mirrors about two inch, two inch size mirrors that I stuck on the hat myself, covered the whole hat in mirrors. <laughs> and it looked great. But you didn't get the effect on TV as much as a stage. On stage, it was a bloody heavy hat, I tell you, with all these mirrors on. It was really heavy. <laughs> we'd only take two or three songs in it on stage. And I used to come on and we'd black the arena out. And we just used to hit the hat with a tiny pin spot. And of course these huge beams of light would come out the hat. Yeah, like a spaceship, and I could move it round and light all the audience up with a hat. I mean, the effect was a stage incredible, and the, you could hear literally hear the crowd go, Whoa, when it, when it just hit. <laughs> and you did it yourself, though, like you didn't have a team of people doing no, all this no, stuff for no, you, no, no, it was days. you with your wives and a, and no, a glue gun. That's true. We didn't have wardrobe people in those days, anything if, if on the road. I rip my clothes or anything. I'd mend them myself on the road. <laughs> I had a great one.
1: Can you imagine Beyonce getting a needle and stitch out
2: now? <laughs> when I was doing the talk to him Mark racli he used to see me carrying this little attache case with me, like a little doctor's bag in, into the hotel, and he, he used to say, what this was on stage one night he says, What the bloody hell you have you got in that in that little doctor's bag? He thought it was Makeup kit or something like that, and I said, "Oh, it's my tools, my handyman tools." And he went, "What do you mean you carry handyman tools around?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "I've always done it." I said, "If I get bored in a hotel room, <laughs> and you know the shower curtain, the shower rails always hanging off, or the curtain, or the wardrobe door don't hang right, or the drawers don't work," I said, "I get, I, I, I them." And <laughs> he said, he passes the time. He said, you must be the only guy, rock bands wreck their hotel rooms. You're the only guy who actually leaves your hotel room better than when you entered it. <laughs> Have you always had a little bit? Mind you, I suppose it's
1: quite nice when you come home away from life on the road to get a screwdriver out or, you know, to go and bang a few nails into DIY, something. DIY,
2: I'm useless at all. Oh, Really? Yeah, I'm hopeless at home. I can find so, so where does that come from then? You suddenly turn into Bob the Builder when you leave the house. I like mending things. I hate throwing anything away. <laughs> I recycle everything. Yeah, I, 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 I've always done it. Even before recycle was the trend. I've always recycled and, and never throw anything away. I've got boots from Anello and David, which were the, made the Beatles boots back in the early 60s. I've still got <laughs> boots made by Anello and David. I'm telling you. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I have bet your wardrobe could tell some stories. Full of old tat. Do you? Kid. Well, it's not old tat to me. Oh. It's like it's like a treasure no. trove of uh, clothes, uh, scarves, ties, all sorts of memorabilia, and and what people would. Uh, my missus goes mad. She said I've got more shoes than she has, and I probably have got far more <laughs> shoes than she has. I have stolen <laughs> stuff. It goes back, but it all comes round again. But I can't, I, I can't yeah. stand throwing things into landfill. I just can't face it. Oh no! And you've got to preserve that stuff because
1: the, you know, that's that's pop history it is, right yes, there.
2: Yeah, I, I, that's what I think. Yeah. Uh, I wish I'd have kept yeah, a lot no. of stuff. A lot of stuff, my stage clothes over the years, <coughs> platform shoes, suits, and that. I gave away to charities for the auction. I mean they've got disappeared yeah. in the midst of time now. But if I'd have kept everything, oh Lord knows how much stuff I would have had. Uh, but I, I did keep Jeez. the hat. That was the one thing I would never have got rid of. Good, I'm glad you've held on to. That. I haven't got any of the platform shoes or anything like that. Sold them. Have all, you not? Uh, well, not sold them. Gave them to charities.
1: I don't think you could walk in them now though, could you? I couldn't.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's it's the funny long. thing, you know. <laughs> when people meet me, and I can tell if in the streets or I've got to do or anything. They're really disappointed that I haven't got the top up with mirrors and, and platform shoes on. I can tell that they get disappointed. It's like Father Christmas without the beard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, have you heard the one about Tom Jones who uh, explained that he had to kind of restyle his sound?
2: Because he felt he was no
1: match for you. I have heard is that Is this story, news yeah, to you? Yeah, yeah,
2: I have heard that story. Yeah. and that's another compliment from somebody like Tom Jones. Isn't it? Yeah, just... absolutely great. Yeah, he said. Um, he said I couldn't do the rock,
1: the heavy rock thing anymore. Noddy Holder was around and kicking every singer in the ass. I never wanted to be a pop singer. Christ, how I hated <laughs> Noddy Holder.
2: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, once, this, is, this is a good one, a Tom. We both at one time, oh god, it must have been about, I don't know, 15 years ago maybe. Uh, we both switched on together the to Christmas lights in Birmingham. He got a gig at the NEC that night, and we were switching the Christmas lights on together in Birmingham. And uh, they wanted this buzz uh, to take us around the city, and we got a wave at the crowds, like me and Tom. <laughs> yeah, well, And we're sitting on the back seat. My missus in between the two of us, Tom's on one side and uh, uh, I'm on the other. And they're all banging the window for Tom, these old women, like these old, let's put that, older women. Uh, Some some missing a lot of teeth, I have to have. (coughs) (laughs) And they're all banging the window, like, and they're going, Tom, Tom, Tom. And I I leaned across by myself, Tom. Don't fancy yours much. <laughs> you know, that's, well, that's one of his things he'd ever heard. <laughs> because he'd be quite. He didn't know really where he was. We'll have to switch it. <laughs> uh, but you
1: must know, I mean, obviously you know one another. But again, what an incredible compliment. You've got John Lennon and Tom, Tom Jones. You can't beat that, can you? You up.
2: Seriously, no. No. Cannot beat that. I, I, my idol, as I t- said earlier, was Little Richard. And I missed meeting mm. him by a day. We were playing no. Vancouver and, uh, this, this play, this gig we were playing, little Richard's brother was managing him at the time. This is in the seventies. His manager came to look at the gig because little Richard was performing the next night in the same gig and he come to check out the sound system and the size of the hall and all the rest of it. And he came in the dressing room after the show. He'd watched our show, and he came in the dressing room. And he says, "Oh, you're a great singer." He said, uh, "Did you did you like my, did you used to like my brother?" I said, "Like your brother, I hero worship your brother." Uh, and I said, "Little Richard," I said, "My one thing was I just love him." He says, "Well, come along tomorrow night. You can meet him backstage." And I went, "Oh no, we've got to go to Winnipeg the next night, so I missed meeting him by a day, Little Richard." I was so Gutted. pissed off, seriously. I could have met him and uh, yeah. apparently he was a real character. Because, uh, of course, in those days, nobody knew he was gay in those days. No. Uh, uh, but he was a, he was a real they just thought he was a showman character. I yeah. mean Just the sort of rock and roll. And a difficult
1: time, know. right, to be a young, black, yeah.
2: gay man. Well, he couldn't come out in the Deep South then. Really difficult. He couldn't come out anywhere then. But certainly not in the deep south. That's for sure. No, uh, I mean, even when we first used to go to the states, you had to be very careful in the deep south. Even us with long hair. You know, they were calling us yeah. faggots everywhere we went.
1: Because you had long hair.
2: Yeah. One of the first times we went to Texas to play, because I love playing pool. I used to fancy myself as a bit of a pool player. Me and our tour manager. Did you? And we'd always get a few drinks, and we got to the local little, little pool hall after the shows and start, of course, challenging the the local American guys like and We'd walk in with all the hair down and of course they took us to the cleaners because they were, you know, fancy pool players, but they used to really, I mean, get on at us because these were rednecks, you know, real rednecks and uh, us being silly white men from the black country who'd never ventured into America, <laughs> we hadn't got a clue. It's Dressed like glam rockers Of of uh, you know, the Midwest or the Southern Southern Rednecks at all. So Lordy knows what it'd be like for uh, the black black people down there. And when you find out when you start to meet the the black guys, you know, the, the blues men and that who toured for years, uh, and they couldn't go in the you know, the the white hotels or nothing. I mean the stories are yeah. horrendous, particularly well it's not just musicians but how musicians were treated in those days were just terrible terrible
1: yeah I tell you a really good book um, I, I don't know if it's on audio uh, that really dives into that is Quincy Jones' autobiography because he used you to yeah before he that. was um, before, it's, it's called Q by Quincy Jones and I don't know if many people know this but before he came to produce, you know, Michael Jackson, which is what everybody knows him for, and then The Colour Purple. Yeah. Before that, he had a big band, he and did. it was an entirely black big band Yeah, he was a jazz
2: player, wasn't he? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, um, yeah, he, he recounts a lot of stories that, that are, are very much in line I think they with what you just do. touched upon. I think
2: even, I mean, the attitude there, even today with a lot of people. I took yeah. my wife on a trip Sadly. to the southern states, only about six years ago, we did a couch trip over through Nashville, Memphis, all across the south to New Orleans, because she, she loves the southern music, the country music and that. And she'd never done... She'd been to Memphis before, because she's mad on Elvis. And uh, so we took a couch trip going to the cotton fields and everything, and where all the civil, civil rights movement and all that. Mm. It was a great trip. Uh, but some of the diners we went in, Uh, Some of the Americans, I'm not saying everybody, but some of the Americans on the trip, they were from Hicksville, some of them, he treated the black people just terrible, even today. You know, the waiters and the people serving behind the counter. I was just amazed that it was still going on, even in this decade. It was just strange for somebody like... Horrible
1: ignorance. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You just want to think, there's nothing changing. It's got to be. There's got to be a change. I'm sure there is a change to some extent, but, but clearly not enough. Not enough. Not, not enough. enough, and certainly not quick enough. That's for sure. No,
1: you had another day in 1980 where you found yourself in one day meeting two icons. Do you know who I'm talking about? Well, three icons.
2: Was it three? Yeah.
1: Are Hit you me with your hat trick.
2: In New York? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a true story. The first one I met, I was in the lobby of this hotel and uh, Muhammad Ali, we were living in New York at the time and uh, it we were, I was in the lobby of the hotel. Uh, I'd had breakfast, I'd come in, I'd been out to a diner for breakfast and I'd just come in. I was getting the lift back up to my room. The elevator, as I should say, I was in New York. And uh, I'm in the waiting for the lift and through the big doors of the hotel, Posh Hotel walks Muhammad Ali with all his bodyguards around him. This is the world champ. I mean, this man is so beautiful, it's untrue. In the flesh, Pussy. he always said he was beautiful, but he was beautiful. <laughs> and he walked like a big ship, this guy. I mean, he was so big. Of course, everybody in the lobby is charging out to shake his hand. And he was very amicable, shook everybody's hand. I thought, I've got to go and shake his hand. And I shook Mohammed Ali's hand. I mean, he got the grip, he could have crunched my hand with his little finger, you know. <laughs> but he was a big guy. Anyway, lovely, absolutely. Didn't chat to him, he just, he was shaking people's hands. So I'm waiting for the lift, and I get in the lift, and um, standing in the corner was another guy, black guy, as broad as he was tall. And I thought, I recognised this guy. I thought he must have been a musician or something. Then, just as the doors are closing on the lift, I thought, oh my God, it's Pele football. <laughs> and at the time, he was playing for New York Cosmos. He'd just signed to New York Cosmos, the American soccer team. And I thought, I've got to speak to him. I can't ignore this. I'm in the lift with probably the greatest soccer player there's ever been. Yeah. And I said, hi, man. <laughs> You don't know what to say, do you? I went, hi, man. I think you're a great footballer. (laughs) And he went, thank you. And I went, I'm in a rock and roll band. I'm touring America at the moment. He says, I know you are, man. He says, you're a huge band in South America, which we were. He's from Brazil. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But we never could play there in those days. And... uh, Pele knew who I was and he was really nice. Anyway, I go to Maroon. Anyway, same hotel. This is all in the same hotel. There must have been a a sports convention of black sportsmen in the hotel. With Arlie and Pele there, same day. Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, comes the evening in this hotel. Chas Chandler, our manager and producer, he produced and managed and discovered Jimi Hendrix. But before that, he was in a band called The Animals, who had a lot of uh-huh. big hits in, in the city. Yeah. And particularly in America. They were a huge act in America. And they used to do in America these package tours with black acts. I mean, till they went there, people in America thought The Animals were a black act. It was Eric Bird, the singer Sounded like a black singer. And so they got put on a lot of package tours with a lot of black artists. And one of the artists they got packaged with was the Supremes. Wow. And Charles Chandler, this is the early days of the Supremes. Charles Chandler used to say to us, oh I used to go out with Dinah Ross. I used to take her out on said, oh fuck off Charles, you never went out with (laughs) Dinah Ross. What are you talking about? Because he could he could (laughs) feel a bit Charles Anyway this evening in this hotel, this had been going on for years. We'd been with Charles probably five years up to this point. And I'm, I'm, meeting Chaz in the lobby of this hotel. And I'm waiting with Chaz, you know, wait for the car to come or And we're standing there. Who comes through these doors? But Dinah Ross. No. I saw her. Ah, big fur coat. Surrounded by her entourage. She was a big star. This is about 75 time. She was a big star in America. She comes through the doors. Chaz is six foot six tall she spots Chas, she charges over to him puts her arms around him and goes charles darling i've not seen you for so long she's kissing his neck and his cheeks <laughs> he's looking <laughs> over his shoulder to me and he's going <laughs> he's "Got his arm that's the best you? mic drop ever <laughs> so I'm at 3 huge american icons in one day
1: at one hotel
0: wow
1: not a bad day's work not a bad and that day. sounds
2: like it all happened like before
1: what dinner <laughs> yeah it was all before dinner yeah <laughs>
2: you know, i think that's
1: gonna happen you really yeah. never but do you know what having sat and talked to you today yeah i would think that would happen because you have <laughs> lived the most extraordinary life Noddy, i have a magnet really have. i have
2: do have a magnet for the strangest people not just stars, but normal people as well. I have, the, I mean, like the strangest magnet. I'm, I'm this one. I'll, I'll tell you this, just this one story. Um, I went going to America this year, and I took my wife and uh, my son and his and his, and his uh, fiance to Vegas. They'd never been to Vegas, so I took them to Vegas, and it was it was planned before COVID when I was ill. But mm. uh, COVID hit and we couldn't do it. So I was going to go to New York. Uh, we, had to, we had to use the booking to New York uh, before March ended this year. And I said, oh, it's going to be too cold to go to New York this time of year. It's, it's potluck whether it's going to be warm enough. I said, we'll go to Vegas instead. We'll change the booking to Vegas. Bound to be warm there, be fine. You lot have never been to Vegas, so we'll have a good time in Vegas. Of course... It hadn't snowed for 20 years in Vegas till we (laughs) arrived. We got got off the plane. It was like a snowstorm. (laughs) In your Christmas, you literally take it to the desert. (laughs) Yeah, in the desert. So, this was a weird one. I get mistaken for people all the time. They know my face, but sometimes they can't place it. You know, they come up with all sorts of people that I might be. (laughs) Anyway, they decided the three of them, my, my kids and Susan, they decide they want to go to the Grand Canyon because they'd never been to the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon at that time is 10, 10 degrees colder than it was in Vegas. It was cold. So we had to get this cold strip to go out there. It's a two-hour drive out to uh, the canyon from Vegas. We went and booked this cold strip. They picked you up at 6 o'clock in the morning. And... Um, uh, you, you start traveling out. You know, there's loads of people on the coach. And about an hour in, in the desert, on the highway, they stop at a diner so you can have breakfast. Because it, well, none of us have had breakfast. So we got to this diner, we're having breakfast, great American breakfast in the diner. And when we've all finished, they were telling us, get back on the coach now, we're going to carry on the journey. And uh, I said to my missus, well, I've got to go for a piss. I'm not going to last another hour and a half till we get to the canyon now at my age. So I goes in the toilet in this diner and I'm having a wee in the cubicle thing. Uh, And standing next to me is a cowboy with a cowboy hat and he's standing next to me. And he's on our couch. He's he's sitting in the row in front of me on the couch. And he turns around to me and he says, uh, Hey man, I recognise you. I says I'm oh, really he says yeah he says I recognise you don't I? I says well you might do I said it's a bit strange but I thought middle of the Nevada desert you know freezing cold he says yeah he says uh, you're Robert Redford <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it I said I'll take this <laughs> well I thought it was I says when we get back on the couch. I said you have to say to my missus hey lady I congratulate you. you married to Robert Rayford. I said, you've got to tell her <laughs> when we get back on the couch. You're not telling that blooming story again, you? it old She was agrees with me, I'll take that. See? Uh, take it. Yeah. Take anyway. I mean, yeah. how many
1: times do we have to hear it?
2: We get back on the couch. <laughs> we get back on the couch. And we walk into the gangway. And as I say, the cowboy sitting with I said, go on, tell her. All the coach gets to listen now because they don't know what, what are we going to say. I said, go on, tell her what you've just told me in the toilet. He went, man, I've got I to congratulate you. You're married to Robert Redford. Of course, all the coach are <laughs> pissing themselves and laughing. There's English women behind us. They're all pissing themselves. I said, well, I'll take it anyway. And I was Robert Redford for the rest of the trip.
1: Why not? Gives you a break from being Neville Holder. Just get these daft magnets for people.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: and do you know what, Noddy? Long long may that last. Let's hope
2: so, you. Thank you.
1: Bef- before I let you go, I know we touched on your health earlier and I'm so thrilled that you're doing so well and the, the treatment, as experimental as it was, is definitely working for you. I'll tell That's you what, you wonderful. look pretty good. That's a you lot of ring lights. No,
2: no. I mean, full stop. You do. Thank you very much. You look now so different to when I first saw you, you bloody donkeys years ago I think I first
1: interviewed you at VH1 in 1998 was it that Oh God! okay okay yeah so that's going back some we time We look the same oh thanks Nod t- thank you oh, as, as you would say to a cowboy I'll take it <laughs> <laughs> oh Noddy thank you so much I hope you have a lovely Christmas I've really enjoyed talking to you I'm you know Anybody that is, is sitting in, listening in on this conversation will fully understand why, all these years on, you are still one of the greats. What thank
2: is, you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's hope we bump into one another
0: sometime. I
1: now? hope so. Uh oh, my huge thanks to Mr Christmas, Noddy Holder. I don't know about you, but my cheeks ache from smiling. That was excellent. Noddy Holder. Legend, the voice of Christmas. And for more Christmas legends, you can find episodes in our back catalogue with Alad Jones. He's got some great stories. Uh, Christopher Biggins, of course, the voice of Panto and Panto Dames. As well as Hannah Waddingham, whose Christmas special is up on Apple TV now. And if more music chat is what you're after, well, we've got you covered there too. How about some skin from Sconca Nancy? Some Tom Grennan, Ray, Charlene Spiteri, Imelda May. That's a great episode. Gary Barlow, Rama, They're all in our back catalogue waiting for you thank you so much for your company and for me and the team at white wine question time a very merry christmas
2: white wine question time is a stack production and part of the acast creator
1: network